the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation in studio tonight with Sharon Landis, founder and executive director of Healing Tears, a ministry of compassion related to the issue of post-abortive women and men. Information again on the web at HealingTears.org. That's HealingTears.org. All right, what of this experience, what of the challenge that millions of women have faced since 1973 in deciding to have an abortion for whatever reason and then going months years, decades, without ever really addressing the feelings, acknowledging the pain, validating the questions that are there. What does that do to a person? We have Monica Guzman in studio with us tonight. Monica, welcome. Thank you. We appreciate you coming in to share your story. Thank you. I know it's not an easy story to tell, but an important one. Tell us a bit about your background and eventually why you felt it necessary to address this issue in your own life. Well, I um, was um, 10 when my mother died, 12 when my father died, and uh, I um, was just uh, out there, you know. I was just out there, and uh, I was lost. I, I um, felt like, um, when I think back on it, I was more like a um, sheep that had been released to um, wolves, so to say. No know. shepherd. No shepherd. Lost no. your parents at a very young yes. age. And so yes. any sense of, of direction to say, this is good, this is bad, right. stay away from that. Exactly. You were really robbed of that, weren't you? Very much so. And... Um, I um, had um, ended up having uh, two children. I had um, uh, a son, and two and a half years later, at, I had my son at 14. Mm. And at two and a half year, la- years later, I had uh, my daughter. And um, I just know that I needed, I started hungering and thirsting to know the Lord. I needed God in my life. That's what I I, I needed help. And um, I just um, know that God heard my prayer and um, I uh, accepted Christ in my heart in 1981. And uh, I knew God had um, forgiven me of all my sins. Jesus died that I might have life. I knew it. I accepted it. And then I went on. And in 1987, I uh, married my husband, Joe Guzman. And all the time we were courting, there was this unction in me. You need to tell your husband. Your secret. You need to tell your husband. 
I I resisted it. I resisted it and I refused. I couldn't. I had stuffed that secret so far down in me that um, I didn't tell him before we were married. And um, a few years went by and here it comes again. You need to tell your husband. You need to tell Joe. Tell him. Now, Joe was aware that you had two children, younger. He was aware that I had two children. Well, yeah, because they were, you yeah. know, with, yeah. Part of the family. They, he, yeah. But yeah. There, there were some other events in there that you were hiding from him. Yes. And almost hiding, in a sense, Monica, from yourself. Is that fair to say? I did. I couldn't think about it. I stuffed it. I refused. I would fight, fight to not let it come to surface for me to dwell on what I had done. You mentioned to the point of seeking and finding God. Yes. Was there ever any sense that God would reject you if this is something that you confronted head on? And I know that sounds like a funny question because some people listening saying, well, of course God knows. He's, he's all-knowing and all-seeing. And yet sometimes in the, in the privacy of the decisions that we make and in our sins, we feel as if somehow if we don't think about it and don't address it, maybe somehow God won't know about it because if he knows about it, how could he possibly love us for forgiveness? Did you ever have feelings like that? I had feelings of, of shame, mm. of regret, of torment. And I, I just know that I had to, I had to seek God because I couldn't continue uh, in that state. And um, so I believed once I accepted God, I knew, I, I believed that I was forgiven. And, but I was still full of hurt and pain and shame. And, and did you get the sense the Holy Spirit was prompting you then? Oh, definitely. To come clean, so to speak, with Joe? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, my husband was outside, and I was in the house, and it was, it, it, here it was again. You have to tell him. I was afraid, but I knew at that point I had to go and tell him. Were you afraid, too, as you've described? Shame, regret, torment, that revealing that secret to your husband would have a detrimental effect on your relationship? Yes. What would he think of you? Would there be a trust yes. factor that would be harmed because of that? Yes. Well, I knew, well, my, my husband's first wife um, passed away. And uh, from cancer, and they had always wanted children, and they couldn't have children. So I knew his story. So because I knew his story, um, I was ashamed to tell him. I thought he would take it. How? How could you? You know? How could you do this? You know? And God did end up blessing them with. Uh, um, a, a beautiful daughter after they adopted two beautiful children. But when I told him, I told, I went outside, I told him, I said, I have a secret. I, ha I have a confession to tell you. And he said, what is it? And um, 
I said I had two abortions and it was quiet you know and um, he just put his arms around me and he held me and he comforted me and he spoke words of encouragement to me. He reassured me right then that he loved me. Joe, in that moment, when she first approached you and says, I have a confession, a lot of guys are thinking, uh-oh, she's run up the credit card to the hilt. <laughs> Something of that sort. What was going through your mind? When you could see that she was obviously in emotional pain, this was something serious. What was going through your mind? What was your sense of anticipation about what she might say? And what was your initial reaction after she revealed to you her secret? Well, I just know that um, she kept this pain for a long time in her in her heart, you know. And what I felt. I, I actually I felt more love for her because she was so honest and um, and the pain that she's been holding all these years yeah I just felt this um, this love for her uh, this is God's daughter and um, I just needed to love her and understand her and show her grace like God shows us grace he showed me abundance of grace. And um, I just, I promised the Lord I was going to take care of her through her pain and support her. And um, it just gave me more love for my wife. Just gave me more love for my wife. Through um, all those years, she kept it in. And um, I just felt more in love with her. You have a gem over yes. here. You know that, <laughs> yes, don't you? I do. There are women listening right now who are probably fighting back tears, saying, I've had my confession to make that I've held for years and years, and I am literally terrified of saying anything, let alone the sense of God rejecting me. What would my husband say? What would my children say? What would anybody close to me say if they found out this dirty, dark secret from my perspective that I've held down all these years? Yeah, yeah. And that, and, and Craig, I tell you, the thing of it was is that I lied to him. I lied to my husband. The fact was I had three abortions, but I was too ashamed too ashamed to tell him that and um, so we went on you know a few years went by and I'm at work one day and my co-worker I, I, I'm at work at Shepherd's Gate I, work for, I was working at Shepherd's Gate and my co-worker Jennifer comes to me and says we're going to have a panel of women coming Monica to tell their stories their abortion stories and um, are you going to come? And I said, I'm going to think about it, you know. Well, right then, I made my mind up. I'm not going. I am not going to that. And this was the next day. I was off. I'm not going. 
Well, when I woke up that morning, I was I felt this compelling unction in me go. I got ready like I was hurrying up to get ready so I wouldn't be late to work. And I got there and these wonderful, courageous women of God told their stories. By the time I heard the last one, I was sobbing. I was boohooing. I could not. I, I couldn't. I was so broken. I went to I, I went to Sharon and I started telling her my story. I told her the truth and I told her and I told her I lied to my husband. And I said, but I got to tell him the truth. They prayed for me. They wept with me. They laughed with me. It was just everything I needed. God knew who to put in that room with me. Let me ask you to pause there for a moment, Monica, because when we come back, I want you to share with our listeners how your life has changed since letting this secret out, not only in terms of how you feel and think of yourself, but in terms of your relationship with your husband with your children, and with your God. Yes. We're going to pause on that point. We'll take a very brief time out. I don't want you to touch the radio dial. You are forbidden. <laughs> we'll be back with more of our conversation. Monica Guzman in studio tonight, along with Sharon Landis, the founder and executive director of Healing Tears. Information again about this ministry and how it can help you on the web at healingtears.org. We'll take a very brief time out and back with more. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back. Craig Roberts, Sharon Landis, and Monica Guzman sharing her story. Monica, let's pick things up where we left off. You talked about the tremendous relief, yes. not just in the first revelation to Joe of two of the three abortions, but eventually coming to him again and saying, I, I manipulated the truth a bit again. It's actually more than that. Finally, now, there's this breakthrough. You suggested it was like having 100 pounds of weight lifted off of your shoulders. How has coming to terms with the decision to abort, the loss of the children, the grieving, the mourning, the acknowledgement of the loss, the discovering of the forgiveness, not just from God, the grace extended to you by your dear husband, but then eventually to be able to realize that in through all of this is God orchestrating yeah. what it's like to experience his forgiveness. How has that experience now impacted your relationship with Joe, your relationship with your children, your relationship with God, and, and ultimately how you see yourself? Well... As far as my relationship with my husband, my husband is my hero. Jesus is my savior, but my husband is my hero because God gave me someone who was gentle, kind, patient, loving, humorous, and um, sensitive because sensitivity 
was definitely definitely what I needed when I couldn't take no more from writing down the truth of what I had done and I would just cry he would come in the kitchen and he would hug me and hold me and sometimes he'd cry with me until I let him know okay I'm all right now and I go back to writing so my husband is my hero and I know now God put him into my life because of the, the, the pain and the hurt that he has suffered. God prepared him to be a major support for me. He prepared him. Yes. I went through cancer twice. He took care of me. I feel like I am the most blessed woman in the world. I should mention for ladies listening, she keeps Joe in a cage at night and a very short <laughs> leash, not available because there's thousands of women saying, does he have a brother? <laughs> no, my husband, through all those emotions, the anger and stuff, when I, sometimes I would snap, you know, I was angry. And if he didn't just back off and, and just pour some oil on the water yes <laughs> just leave me in God's hands you know if he didn't do that that the enemy would have we may not even be sitting here right now that's why I know God specifically prepared and equipped him to be my um, support and see guys when you're a godly man yes you will become a hero to your wife. You should aspire to be a godly man. So instead of your wife saying, I can't wait to kick the bum out of the house, your wife is saying, Jesus is my Savior. God in heaven is my Lord. But my husband is my hero. Guys, are you listening? Are you listening? Say a word to women listening right now who are today where you were who are filled with, and I'm quoting you, shame, regret, and torment, who are terrified of anybody finding out, who can't possibly imagine having a conversation with God about this, let alone a husband or offspring, and are in that prison where you were, and they're terrified to come out. Talk specifically to that woman, would you? I know you're feeling desperate. You're in a desperate place. But God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die and shed his innocent blood that whosoever believes in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. He has forgiven you. Now, the Lord wants you to know it is time to forgive yourself. You are free. Be set free from that prison of shame and guilt and, and torment and stress that just comes and hits you over the head anytime it wants to. You don't have to take it no more. You don't have to take it no more. God loves you. 
your babies, our babies, are with the Lord in heaven. And even women who have had miscarriages, those babies are with the Lord in heaven. You didn't do anything wrong. It, it, when you have miscarriages, it's, it, that's, it, those things happen. You didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing for you to feel guilty about either. It's time to forgive yourselves and be free and tell your story. And I would like to say to any men out there, husbands, be men and let the truth come out. And when she finishes, don't question her. Don't use give any negative body language. Don't look wrong. You hold her. And you thank her for trusting you with her story. And then from that point, you love her unconditionally, just the way God loves us. Just the way God loves you, unconditionally. Sharon, there are a lot of women listening right now that are perhaps overwhelmed by Monica and Joe's story. And they say, I don't know where to start. I need somebody to help walk me through this. Talk to us a bit about Healing Tears Ministry and what women what post-abortive women can find in terms of hope and healing. We, we offer a Bible study that takes you through the grieving process step by step. Just and, and But before you do that, we'll just meet with you and talk to you and see if you're ready. Just, just sit and talk. Tell your story. See if you're ready to do this, if this is a good time. I, I encourage you to give yourself permission to grieve because the healing from abortion involves grieving. You have to grieve your loss and be honest with yourself and honest with God. God already knows, but you just have to come clean with Him. And he, he's, He'll walk you through it. You don't have to go through it by yourself. You, don't have, you went through the abortion alone. You don't have to go through the healing alone. You have Amen. comfort. You have support. And we're there to support you. So we have, we have a class starting next month in Castro Valley, and there are other places that some have, have groups that can do the similar thing. But, yeah, I just encourage any woman who's had an abortion to call us, to look at the website, to send me an email, just to say, I'd like to find out more about the healing. Because it does take, it's not something that you can do in one session. It does take a few months to go through this. Because and for a lot of these women, they have been stuffing this right. down for a few years, if not decades. Right, and it's... The anger that you have inside of you that keeps you from forgiving yourself. It's the pain that you've never let out so that even though you even believe in your head that God does forgive you, because he does, he forgives all our sins, but to get that from your head to your heart takes means you have to process these emotions. And for the men listening right now who might think, there's a disconnect with my wife. There is a reaction to circumstances 
that just doesn't seem to work logically. Meaning that there's almost as if a a well of resentment or anger is drawn from. And you've never been able to figure out why. Maybe now a light has gone on. Maybe you need to broach the subject. Maybe you need to let your wife know it's okay to talk and be open. Create a safe place for her, as Monica described. What about husbands and wives who've had an abortion? They need to both Mm. grieve it and talk. I remember a pastor saying to a friend of mine who they had, had aborted their child. And they never dealt with it for 15 years, never talked about it. And usually once you have an abortion with your husband, you never talk about it. Ever. 20 years later, we've never talked about it. You need to talk about it. You need to let these feelings come to the surface. I mean, abortion affects the fathers just as much as the mothers, but they don't. They acknowledge it even less. I mean, they, they, they most of them didn't go through the procedure, even though some do watch it. But it affects them. And in addition to that conversation taking place, um, pastors, if you're listening, 58 million children aborted in America since 1973. I won't talk about this from the pulpit because it's controversial, embarrassing, awkward, difficult, hurtful, painful nonsense. It's time that you come to terms with what it is that you're trying to hide or avoid and quit denying the men and women in your congregation the opportunity to experience the totality of forgiveness in Jesus Christ because you're too afraid that it might be construed as politically incorrect to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder to talk about the grief to acknowledge the pain, the anger, the anxiety, the self-loathing, the shame, the torment, as Monica described it. You are robbing your parishioners of the ability to find healing. My beef is not with you and your beef is not with me. I suggest you have a conversation with God about it. And ask yourself the question, when is the last time you got up from the pulpit and shared all of the good news. Mm -hmm. That includes post-abortive men and women. Again, information available on the web at healingtears.org. That's healingtears.org. I'd like to thank Sharon Landis, the founder and executive director of Healing Tears, for being with us today, and Monica Guzman and your husband, Joe, for sharing your story tonight. I'll mention for listeners that want to repeat some of what you've heard, or you know someone that is today where Monica was. And you say, oh, I, I've got to get this information into their hands. They have to hear Monica's story. The podcast of tonight's broadcast will be available tonight about 7.15. And you can go to kfax.com, download that podcast, send a link to someone who needs to hear this story. We want to get this message out to as many post-abortive men and women as we possibly can. So, again, we encourage you to get a copy of the podcast and to get more information about the Ministry of Healing Tears on the web at HealingTears.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million 
Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Mention that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about... Um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of uh, the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have, you mean you're, two, you're, we, have, uh, we have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a, you know, very... Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we we haven't kept you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it, um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had because I'm an old man now and believe it, it believe me, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And, uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned to Seventh Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to Seventh Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. 
and I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging postdoctoral fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted. Uh, and then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going. <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan and... and uh, and they, you know, basically said, we're a young army and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss. And uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to, you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that, you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving. And his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have... Uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And... Um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan. And the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the grain segment of American population, yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight, as you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministry into this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ, but then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique 
spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes, in fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Um, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa. Seniors um, um, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70%, were seniors. And 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in the, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes, and they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping. You you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author in our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has, you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, a growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of 
of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it on the, uh, from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who are um, who their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we we live in a very age-graded. Uh, society and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor our churches. We think we we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives. Uh, we really work our entire lives, and and you know so the these are structures that are really lifelong. So we we go to school, we work, and we. Uh, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work. And the church needs to challenge, you know, to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs, uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs, help us, uh, you know, do some late life planning, end of life, aging in place initiatives, uh, helping people prepare for um, uh, caregiving, and now we're talking about you know middle stage adults who are worried about their aging parents, and then challenging the the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their li- their long term care plans. The long term care industry in this country is broken and it's in trouble. And you know when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of sixty five than we have eighteen and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table, and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming and uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.